here with Nav Kapoor from Manchester, who gave a keynote here at the conference in Derry. Hi, Nav. How are you doing? I'm really good. How are you, Andre? I'm great. And it's almost... Well, I think we're just over halfway through, yeah. but I still have some energy left. So good, good. Power on now. Yeah, no, that's great. So you, you talked a lot about implementation. Yeah. Um, and there's a load of research being presented here, but yeah. you said, no, I'm going to talk about the yeah. problem getting it in. Absolutely. And I, I, I think... Um, what I wanted to do is I wanted to kind of challenge uh, challenge the people here. It's, there's been brilliant research presented here over the last you know, couple of days, more brilliant research to come. Um, but it was really getting people to think about how their research makes a difference. That's one thing publishing it in journals. It's, you know, how do you, what happens next with your research? How do you get it into practice? How do you um, get it into guidelines? So quite a lot of my stuff was focused around guidelines, clinical practice guidelines. Uh, uh, social care guidelines which I've been involved in through some of my work with NICE um, but to, uh, so yeah, let's yeah. just pick up on that because when I started working in mental health 20 years ago we said you know wouldn't it be great if we had evidence-based guidelines yeah. and I was involved in publishing one of the first evidence-based guidelines with John Geddes in psychiatry yeah, yeah, like yeah. 1999 or something yeah, yeah. And, and now we've got NICE we've got you know a lot of evidence-based guidelines we've got loads of systematic reviews we've got loads of you know great research in mental health but we haven't closed this implementation gap. And we've got mobile phones as well yeah, yeah, to do it. So what is the, are guidelines actually useful? Are they gonna impact positively on practice? I, um, I'm a big fan of guidelines. I've been involved in guidelines for about, probably about 15 years, uh, slightly less time than, than you. Uh, but um, I, I think they're, they're really important kind of galvanizing force to highlight an issue. And also, you know, people kind of say to me, well, why have you done so much? of the guideline stuff you know what why do you like guidelines and you know the, the stock answer I give um, is well it you know as a, as a psychiatrist it gives me the opportunity to affect the care not just of the service user or patient in front of me but the care for everyone and it, it's in some sense you might say well is that a bit try to you know it's a bit of a kind of answer but, it, but it's true I mean I really am a great enthusiast of uh, of guidelines um, but you know I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. I think we need to understand guidelines and their limitations and, and understand how we best implement them. And that, that implementation is really important. So, um, I mean, one of the things that, that I think you know, generated quite a lot of interest and, and we talked extensively about is how, how we actually develop the guideline. You know, people, and, and you're absolutely right, the big advance has been that the guidelines are evidence-based. So at NICE and other places, we'll look at the research evidence, We'll particularly look at um, randomised controlled trials. Some people think that's maybe the wrong approach. Other people think, well, it's the best way of evaluating interventions. That's NICE's approach. They prioritise randomised controlled trials for uh, clinical um, guidelines. And, and there's definitely that hard science bit in guidelines. And that, I think, is a massive strength. I think the other bit of guidelines is 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 um, actually perhaps less well known. It's, it's it's more of a kind of dark art. There's there's a there's this idea when well what do you do? You know, if I'm a clinician and there's no evidence in an area, I still need guidance. So how do you do that? Well, nice have what we call a kind of consensus based approach where the people on the guideline uh, committee you know come to a consensus about the best way forward and. You know, sometimes, you know, I've been both a guideline member and a guideline chair and achieving that consensus is, is 
sometimes a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a challenge. Um, sometimes you can have formal consensus-based approaches where you, where you, where you have votes, of, um, but, but in general, NICE don't do that. It's about bringing members of the committee with you or arguing your point. And it, you know, my, my experience with guidelines today has been a, a very positive one, and, and generally we've got that consensus where uh, the evidence um, isn't there. But, but you know, in that context, we have to understand their limitations. These are partly evidence-based, and when the evidence is strong, when the research is good, um, you know, there's some suggestion that that improves implementation. Uh, you know, some of the more consensus-based stuff might be more difficult to implement. But that idea that you know, um, guideline development is both hard science and dark art. I think you know, was one of my th- was one of my themes today. <laughs> So I'm going to ask you a question about the makeup of those guidelines committees and your views on that. This is quite a long question because I yeah, need yeah. to fill in a little story first. So I published a blog by Clive Adams four yes. years ago about CBT for psychosis. Yeah. And he was blogging about the sign guidance and the NICE guidance and the different makeup of those guidelines committees and the fact that the NICE guidance recommended CBT for psychosis and the sign guidance didn't. And that was a very big controversy at the time. But the NICE guideline committee had a lot of psychologists on it. And the sign committee had a lot of psychologists and a lot of psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. So how do you make sure that those kind of those committees are representative and actually come out with an unbiased, think, as unbiased as sort of recommendations? I, I, possible? I think it's I think it's um, sometimes tricky because of course guideline committees are you know made up of the people who are on the committees and people come from different disciplines, different backgrounds, different points of view. I mean, my my understanding from nice is that they you know they have they try and get a broader constituency as possible uh, they pre-specify the kinds of people uh, they might want on uh, groups there's always a strong um, service user uh, representation um, and I mean I think I think that's what what it's about I mean inevitably sometimes there will be yeah, people might look at a guideline and think, oh, you know, what, what the, look at the composition of this. They, you know, they all favour one type of treatment or another. But as far as you know, I think nice or able, they they look very carefully at the composition. But the other thing I'd say, you know, um, is is the process. So the nice process is really, I, I'd say, you know, it's amongst the most robust um, in the world. Um, you know, and it and it's very very detailed. You know, it's it's and and I think that also to me kind of you know protects against some of the the idea that you know this, this thing's biased oh no guideline is perfect i must uh, i must say that one but one of the things we need to think about is you know how we better implement guidance um but also how we better implement um research and and one of uh, one of the one of the slides i put up was my h index so um some of your uh, some of your listeners might might not know what H index is. For others, it will be uh, one of the their, their main motivating factors at work. I'm talking uh, slightly flippantly. You know, in, in academia, we worry uh, quite a lot about how how much our research is used, how much it's cited, and the H index is a measure of how often uh, your work is cited. So I, I I put up my H index today to the amusement of um, uh, uh, many people in the audience, which shows that you know although some of my papers have been quoted there's a long tail and that means that probably about half my papers have been quoted once or or not very much um, and so that's quite an important lesson to us as researchers that you know maybe half the papers we publish won't be cited very much and, and my my h index and my h graph i don't think are, are particularly unusual so then the question becomes 
yeah, how can we get that, that research into practice um, uh, more effectively? And, um, you know, uh, dissemination is really important. You know, this kind of thing where we're, we're trying to reach people who are, who are out there. Um, and, you know, they, they don't... People, policymakers might not want the academic papers. They're important. Um, we publish lots of reports um, as part of the National Confidential Inquiry into Suicide and Safety. Uh, you know, they're well received. They're well received. Um, we we record little video messages, so um, video summaries of some of our research. Again, they're reasonably well received, although sometimes quite quite painful to do when when you know I'm recording a video of myself. Um, but the thing people seem to like. Um, best of all are, are some of the infographics and, and many people would be familiar with infographics but you know the, the initially when, when people talked about you know the, the idea of summarising you know five years of hard research in you know a single sheet with, with kind of brightly coloured kind of icons and graphics seemed, seemed a bit bizarre but actually it's the bit of our work that services use the most um, service users value the most and it's got lots of lots of attention I, and I can't begin to take uh, credit for that that's the team back in Manchester who who produce all this stuff how does that kind of work in terms of drilling down then because I guess that's an easy thing to share on social media um, and you know here's the top line but then when you kind of drill down at what point do you give them the detailed report or the detailed paper? So, I mean, we, we take a we take a um, you know multi pronged approach to this. So, everything is available. So, um, you know, you've got you've got your infographic, you've got you've got the video. We'll still do the videos. You've got um, you know summaries of what this might mean for your care. You've got the executive summary of the report, and then you've got the report. It's all there. Um, you know the the raw data isn't quite there because it's a confidential inquiry for the confidential inquiry so so the raw data might not be there but everything else is kind of out there so you look at the top line yeah and that's a really really interesting finding about people with drugs and alcohol misuse and suicide i wonder you know what the finding is and you know hopefully it's fairly easy to navigate you go on our website the reports are all freely available uh, you can see the actual data and and you know it's important for policymakers clinicians um, researchers to kind of make up their own mind so is that a reasonable inference from the data have we drawn a reasonable conclusion and I, I think that works that combination of having everything available works really well coming back to your point about h index it was nice that you were so self-effacing but people in the audience weren't pointing and laughing no. um, there was a kind of general collegiate sort of yes. response to that but i'm interested in what you think about research impact and, that, and using that as a measure because actually you know in the digital world now um you know we've got all metrics and we've got other ways of measuring the numbers of people getting shared, but do you th- how do you think we need to develop digital and other means to actually be measuring true impact? I think I think stuff like that is is really exciting and, and potentially, you know, a, a, a really um, good kind of growth area um, about how we measure stuff. So, uh, you know, the alternative just isn't. You know, some people say we can't have bibliometrics; it's all nonsense. And actually, but the alternative is, you know, us sitting around saying what we think about a paper and just giving it a kind of blind rating there's, there's a there's a role for that of course but at least bibliometrics are objective we all know people will know how you can sometimes game bibliometrics so if you know for example i was to uh, quote all my own papers all the time that can inflate um, a bibliometric that can inflate an h index but at least it's kind of objective so we need to get smarter and and actually you know the things i'm a big fan of the things like Alt metrics, and you know, it, it, you know, and and I'm particularly interested when there's a, a dissonance between, you know, maybe the number of times a paper's been quoted, but it's got a sky high 
altmetry score because it's been picked up by loads of media it's been retweeted and it's being used and that for me is a as valid a, a way of using the research as, as as citing it both are important and i think different things capture um uh, different different aspects of it but but the idea that we need to get smarter um is is uh, absolutely right and, it, and it's all about how the research is used and i think you know it's not you know, when, when I started in research, we it was all about journal articles. You know, we, we didn't care about anything else. And those days are, are long gone. And I, I don't want my research like that. I came into research, uh, you know, I've got a clinical background. I came into research to actually, you know, try and, uh, again, maybe slight, sound slightly trite, but try and make a difference, actually. And, and I think we've got to have research that's used. So that, that's my kind of challenge to all my friends and colleagues in the audience today. Mm-hmm.